the first thing I'd like to just draw your attention to is have you ever noticed the absence of leadership in the New Testament? Have you ever noticed that no letter in the Bible is really addressed to leaders? Not, not even 1, one Timothy and, and Titus. <coughs> Things are addressed to the churches. Uh, Philippians begins, poor to the saints who are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Not, not poor to the bishops and deacons, but poor to the saints. The Bible is not addressed to leaders. The Bible is addressed to the whole church of Jesus Christ. And leaders, well, they can be there if they want to be, but it's not addressed to them. Uh, we, with them, we hope, they, we hope they come, but it's not to them. It's to the people. And then have you ever noticed how very often leaders seem to be absent? To take this letter that I'm using on and off, 1, one Thessalonians. Where are the leaders in 1 Thessalonians? Well, at the end of the book, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 17. He, is it verse 17? No. Verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and they admonish you. We ask you to esteem them highly in love because of their work. But um, the point I'm making is how late this is in the letter. You've had five chapters, and you wouldn't think there are any leaders there at all. It's not addressed to the leaders. It's addressed to the church. It's not addressed to the leaders. And then at the end of the letter... Oh, oh, yeah, there's some leaders somewhere. You ought to obey them in the Lord. But it, it almost comes in right at the very end. All, they almost seem to be forgotten. And think of the church of Corinth. Was ever, was ever there a church that was more riddled with problems than the church of Corinth? It was Paul's best church, and I think it was his worst church. The, the, the sort of things that were going on there, the quarrels, the arguments, the misunderstanding of the giftings, people denying the resurrection, matrimonial problems, sexual problems. I mean, what a chaos that church was in, although it was a very gifted church. Yet all the way through that letter, Paul never says anything about the elders. He never says, no, you, know, you elders, you better sort out the church a bit. He never says anything like that. So there's a conspicuous downplaying of leadership in the New Testament. It hardly gets mentioned. And uh, well, there are many aspects we could look at it. But, but why, why is this? Well, I would think the answer is because the, the nature of the Christian church is such that God is concerned with the whole people. The entire people of God are God's people, God's church. And this is unlike any worldly organization. When you get a secular organization, a worldly organization, you're very conscious of who are the leaders and who are the bosses and the, the people. They, they just follow and do as they're told. The church of Jesus Christ is not like that. And when the church is declining, the people all disappear. And it's only certain officials. Think of what we get here in this country. Think of the kind of thing you get in the newspapers. The church says the church ought to do this. Who are they talking about? Well, they're talking about the Archbishop of Canterbury and a few other big, big leaders. They hope will speak on behalf of the nation or make some statement about politics or age or something. The church must do this. They're never talking about the people. They're talking, they're talking about a certain hierarchy. Sometimes they don't actually represent anybody. You, you, I remember, I think I referred yesterday to a certain archbishop and man who called himself an archbishop. Who was his people? He didn't have any people. It was just a title. Sometimes you have the World Council of Churches. Who do they represent? How, how, how big are their people? Who, who, who's their congregation? Who's their best preacher? 
Who's the best preacher in the World Council of Churches? Well, there isn't one. They don't represent anybody. They're just leaders and officials and councils. But where are the people? There, aren't, there are no people in those organizations. They're just hierarchy and clergy and officials. But the New Testament is very different from that. The, the worldly way is to be concerned about the hierarchy and, and almost forget the people. The New Testament way is to be concerned about the people and almost forget the hierarchy. It's the exact opposite. There's this concern about the people. And when there's revival, everybody is involved. Everybody comes. Everybody's there at every meeting. People, people are meeting daily in my own fellowship or group, group of fellowships in Nairobi where there's been a, a touch of revival. I wouldn't say there's revival going on now, but there has been a touch of revival in days gone by. People are there every day. I, I had an occasion couple of months back for various reasons I had an occasion to, to go into town Nairobi in a city very early about 5 o'clock in the morning I wanted to park my car in a particular place which is very difficult to do in Nairobi and um, so I went in very very early about 5 o'clock in the morning and I went to the prayer meeting I'm an ordinary prayer meeting I got there rather earlier than usual it begins, it begins at about uh, 6.50 I got there at, at about half past 5 I was not the first one there there were already dozens of people outside at five o'clock in the morning waiting for the doors to open, praying on the outside until somebody opens the door. Every single day, people coming to prayer, and they'll be back at lunchtime, and they'll be back again at five o'clock, they'll be meeting each other daily. When you read the New Testament, you often ask the question, at least I do, when, when it says they were in the temple daily, you think, well, didn't they have work to do? You know, didn't they have jobs? How can they, how can they go to the temple daily? How, 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 how did they manage to live this way? Didn't they have things to do in there? Weren't some of them slaves? Did, they, did their masters let them go for the day? How did they get there daily? Did you ever ask that question? And I don't know the answer. All I know is they did it. Yes. And all I know is in revival, they do it again. You have a conference in the middle of the, of the year and a uh, 10,000 are there, and you say, well, why comes it not at work? Somehow they've begged permission, or, they, or they've said to, to, their, to their bosses, no, this is so important to me, I must be there, you've got to release me, I'm going to go anywhere, whether I have my job or not, it doesn't matter, but when I, when I go there, it does matter, I'm going. And the guy says, yeah, all right, we'll give you some leave. And they get there. There's this meeting of the people Look, read it in the, in the early chapters of the book of Acts. It's famous, the whole of Jerusalem know about it. They have favor with all of the people. This is the New Testament church. It's about people. It's about the common people. And when Jesus comes, you don't get Caiaphas listening to Jesus or, or, or the, the leaders of the Pharisees or the Sadducees. They're not interested. It's the common people. It's Mary Magdalene who is demon-possessed seven times over. It, it, it's some tax collector who's so corrupt. It's all these, these guys. And people say, well, this man, this man, he eats with tax collectors and harlots. And they're despising him. And that's where he is. He's with the people, and the people are there. This is the nature of the Christian church. And you see, we all, we all have gifts. There's no sharp distinction between clergy and laity. There's no difference whatsoever. We're, we're just, it's just that some people have a few gifts and others have other gifts. That's the only real distinction among us. There's certain giftedness among certain people. But there's no kind of a domi- domineering leadership. You don't get that in the New Testament. And so there's a kind of conspicuous downplaying of leadership in the New Testament. And everybody is involved. Everybody is participating. Everybody has gifts. Having gifts that differ. 
Romans chapter six, verse uh, Romans chapter twelve, verse six. Have having gifts, we do have gifts. Every one of us having gifts that differ, let us use them. Whether prophecy, whether service, whether mercy, whether this, whether giving, whether this or that, we all have these gifts, and we're all to be involved. Everybody is involved in the Christian church. And when in Acts chapter fifteen, these two churches have a certain difficulty over whether. The Gentiles have to be Jews as well as Gentiles. Do they have to be circumcised? Well, the churches meet. But have you, have you ever noticed the people are there? The whole congregation in Jerusalem comes. They're all there. It's a public meeting. And the people are keeping quiet. The people are not saying anything. Read, read Acts chapter 15. Certain gifted people are discussing and uh, presenting arguments why Gentiles don't need to be circumcised. <coughs> but the people are there. Must uh, set my watch, otherwise, uh, like Paul at Ephesus, I will preach till midnight. <laughs> um, the people, the people are there, and uh, they're not acting as though they're theologians. They're not saying very much, but they are there. And what it means is that uh, the leaders are not doing anything in secret. They're not in some high, high, uh, secret committee or enclave, and they'll tell the people afterwards. No, the people are there. They know every single thing that's being said, everything that's going on. It's this uh, corporate meeting. Incidentally, uh, you do know, don't you? I hope you do. Don't you know the Christian church was the pi- are the pioneers of democracy? Where, where does the concept of one man, one vote, where does that concept come from? Who were the first people in the world who started giving votes and participation to everybody? Where does democracy come from? It comes from the Christian church. The, old, the oldest founders of democracy in this country were the levelers in Cromwell's army. And they met, they met in a church, yes, a church building. They met in a church building in Putney and discovered giving, giving uh, rights to the people. Where does this come from? It comes from those radical, extreme Baptist Christians in Cromwell's army meeting in a church building and saying, what we've learned in church, why can't we apply it in the nation? That's where democracy comes from in Britain. Where does democracy come from in America? Well, there's a certain Puritan called Roger Williams. His statue is in the middle of Salem in Rhode Island State in America. He came to Massachusetts Bay where the Puritans were. And he, want, he, wanted to, he didn't want a state church. He wanted freedom for the people. He was the first person ever to write a dictionary for any, any American Indian language. Nobody else was concerned about the people the same man that pioneered democracy, he also learned the languages of the local people, the Indians in America. You can see why he did that. How can you relate to such people if you can't speak to them? He wrote the first dictionary. And uh, the, the, people, the early pilgrims of America threw him out. And he went, he went, they, they banished him from the colony. And he went down the road and he founded a new colony, Rhode Island State. It's still there today. And he pioneered a state where everybody had this equality. Where does democracy come from? It comes from the Christian church. It comes from people who learned in church how to give participation to the people. And then what they learned in church, they applied to the states. And the very states became democratic. Here are all these people wanting democracy, and people think that democracy is it's the modern God. But uh, it comes from the Christian church. And where you don't have the Christian church, where there's no... Go, go to Qatar, where I've just come from. Go to a Muslim country. Go to Hindu India. Go to China. Go to Beijing. Go to anywhere else in the world. Where do you find freedom from the people? And don't find it. 
You only find it in countries where there's been strong Christian churches. There was a point, there was a state in the situation in Nairobi some years ago where the, where the, the queue, queuing up at the visa counter in the British High Commission was two days long. You went there on a Monday and you camped all night one day and you camped all night the next day and by about Wednesday you were in the front of the queue. Kenyans being very entrepreneurial people will sell you coffee and donuts all night. And, uh, but you go to some other embassy, no one's queuing up to go to India. No one's queuing up to go to China. No one's queuing up to go to Iran. Why are, they only, why are they so desperate to get to these Western countries? Well, whatever state or, or mess the Western world may be in, it is, it is in a mess. They, there's, enough, there's enough Christian freedom. There's enough uh, capital coming from Christian days for them to be free and to, have, and, to be able to, and to be able to have some kind of free participation in the country. You, they'll get that nowhere else. They'll, they'll do anything. They'll die, if need be, in the attempt to try to get to the West. They're not trying to get anywhere else. Why is that? It's because of the relic of democracy founded by Christians in, in the Western world. They're not, they're not wanting to go anywhere else. This all comes from this New Testament love of people, the ordinary people, the common people heard him gladly, says the, the New Testament. So there is this kind of absence, and the church is not getting anywhere unless all the people are involved and, uh, and so on. So that's, that's the, uh, the New Testament picture, and I, I ask you just to notice it as you read your Bible, this conspicuous absence of domineering leaders, because the people are all flowing, and Paul goes directly to them. He even goes to the children. Have you ever noticed how Paul will say, you children, obey your parents in the Lord? Has that ever grabbed your attention? He doesn't say, you parents, when you get home, tell your children to obey you in the Lord. He doesn't say that. He says, you children, the children are there. Not, not only is every, everybody involved, the children are involved. Well, at what age should children be in church? Well, I wouldn't make any, any rule for you, but I would think it's much lower than you think. The, the children of 10 or 9, I, I remember years ago, in Nairobi Baptist Church, preaching 44 Sundays on the Epistle to the Ephesians. And I still have the notes that one of my children took in her little nine-year-old handwriting of 44 sermons on the Epistle to the Ephesians, sitting there, little nine-year-old girl, making notes of daddy's sermons. I still have them. Children, children can hear the word of God. Some of you may, have, may know of the, doc, the great Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And you might know of his commentaries on Romans. If you ever get one of Dr. Lloyd-Jones' commentaries on Romans, look at the front cover. You'll see Dr. Lloyd-Jones preaching with the thousands in Westminster Chapel, about 2,000, hanging upon every word. That photograph is not Romans, it's Sunday morning. But uh, there, there's that Sunday morning congregation. Look at it carefully. You'll find children in the front row. You'll find little girls and boys listening to someone preaching. He could preach for an hour and 15 minutes sometimes. He, these, these children there. I know some of those children, only that they're now in their 50s and 60s, some of them now in heaven. Those, those people a new years ago, they're strong, mature Christians. But you can see their, you can see their, their, their childhood 
uh, stage of life on the front cover of Dr. Lloyd-Jones' Walks on Romans. You children, you're there. Of course you're there. As the letter to the Ephesians is being read, the children are there. You slaves, you slaves, obey your masters. He doesn't say, masters, when you get back home, go and tell your servants that I gave an instruction, they must obey you. No, no, they're there. You slaves. The slaves are there. The children are there. Everybody's there. There's this fellowship of the saints. And... Um, there are many implications of this. I, I can't uh, spend too much time upon it, but I think it means we must, um, we must do a bit of rethinking of the kind of meetings we have. There's, there's more than one kind of meeting in the Christian church. You get, you get these uh, meetings like this one, where one person is speaking. It's all right, and we should have meetings like that. But I think we, we need other meetings where the whole people are, as it were, participating, where there's a kind of free discussion, fellowship, where no one's teaching. He might be doing a little bit of cheering and uh, just steering things a bit, but the whole people. You, you can do so much by having public, how should I put it, public meetings where everybody's sharing. We need different kinds of meetings. And sometimes when the kind of meeting we had yesterday, where I never did get to saying anything, the last meeting yesterday, where the entire meeting was just questions and, and, and discussions, sometimes I think that's like, more like the New Testament than some of our, our meetings where someone's, as it were, domineering and he's the only one who speaks. I'm not, I'm not saying it's a kind of free-for-all, not saying it's a kind of a chaos where anybody can say what he likes, but we do need meeting where everybody is participating. And you remember the, the 1 Corinthians passage, you all come, one's got a psalm, one's got a song, one's, one's got a hymn, one's, one's, he was given something by the Holy Spirit last night, and he's going to come and sing it to you today. Someone's got a teaching, two or three people can speak one at a time, somebody else stands up, you better sit down while he speaks. This kind of a divine, I don't know what to call it, I'm tempted to call it divine chaos. It, it's, it's, it's a kind of chaotic, and yet although it's chaotic, there's a kind of order there as well. It's under the kind of presidency of God. And uh, you can have meetings like that. And everybody is participating. And um, I believe in doing things like that. But then I would like to to talk a little bit about the the way in which the leaders, such as they are, they're they're not heavy-handed people, but such as they are, the leaders and the people. Paul says here, we ask you to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. And what you get in the New Testament when it comes to how the people and the leaders relate to each other is you get one command on each side. And this is something which is very common in the New Testament. I don't know whether you've noticed it. But when you have discussions in the New Testament about various kinds of relationship, it may be husbands and wives. It might be children and parents. It might be workers and uh, the employers. When you get these instructions about relationship, have you ever noticed how there's one command on each side, and only one? (coughs) Excuse me. Paul will say, husbands, love your wives. That's the only thing he'll say. Wives, let your husband be a kind of chairman of the home. Submit to him in that, in that sense. He's not inferior, but let him be the chairman. So follow your husband in that kind of way. One command to each side, and it's not the same. You might think he would say, husbands love your wives, wives love your husbands. 
You know, it would be sort of uh, equitable, wouldn't it? But he doesn't do that. He gives one command to each side, and only one. It's not the same command. If you went to some marriage counselling bureau or organisation, they probably would want to discuss 20 things, or you'd sit down and you'd put half a dozen problems on the agenda and you'd discuss all these things. Paul doesn't do that. One thing. And when he's talking to children, children, obey your parents. Parents, don't make your children be angry. Uh, again, it's different. He, he might have said, children, don't make your parents angry. Parents, don't make your children angry. But, but the, the two commands are not the same. And so on. Now, why is that? Well, I would think <clears throat> the answer is because in all these varied relationships, there's always one thing somewhere which is central. And if you will get that right, everything else more or less follows. If husbands really do love their wives according to knowledge and they're thoughtful and they're considerate and they, and, and they really act practically in loving their, their families, probably any kind of problems will, will basically begin to be resolved. If, if a wife really will let the husband be a kind of chairman. It's not that, he, that he's superior. It's not that he's more gifted. She might be cleverer than he is. It's nothing like that. She might be more spiritual. It's just in terms of order when you have relationships. Someone somewhere has got to be a chairman, and God's made a certain decree on that subject. Wives, I would translate it like this. Let, let your husband be the chairman of all the discussions in the home. That's all it means. It doesn't mean anything more than that not talking about uh, anyone being a superior Christian or, or cleverer, and there's no superiority or inferior, inferiority doesn't come into it, we're all in the image of God, there's neither male nor female in terms of those things doesn't say male nor female doesn't matter, he says male nor female doesn't exist there is neither male nor female because we're all sons, when you're coming to sonship, or when you're coming to relationship to God, the difference between the sexes doesn't exist doesn't mean it doesn't exist anywhere. It just means it doesn't exist there. In certain relationships, men and women are different, and differences do exist, and so on. Now, the same is true with regard to, uh, to leadership, the, the commands about leadership. The same thing is true. And um, in, before I go into that, I, I ought to say it's important to concentrate on the command that's given to you. You might say, well, yeah, I, you know, I love my wife as long as she submits to me. But that really means that you're concentrating on the command to her. Now don't, don't concentrate on the command to her. Concentrate on the command to you. And you might say, well, you know, I'll submit to my husband when he loves me the way he ought to. No, no, that means you're concentrating on the command to him. Don't concentrate on the command to him. Concentrate on the command to you. It, that's, the, that's your command. You obey that one. Let your, you, you pray hard that your husband might obey the other one. But you concentrate on your one. And you remember how 1 Peter chapter 3 even deals with marriage where the husband is not saved. And he says, if any are, won't even obey the word, they may be one without a word by the reverent behavior of their wives. And that's true. I've known, I've known broken, damaged marriages where the woman is utterly... I'm not quite sure what word to use. I don't know the word submissive very much, but she, she utterly honours her husband and lets him be the chairman of the home and eventually he gets saved. 
And what, what brings him to salvation is he's so impressed with the way he, he knows he's got a woman who's worth her weight in gold. There's no other woman who's like this. She's so loyal to him. She'll, she'll support him. Even when he's wrong, she sort of stands by him, doesn't criticize him too much. And, and finally, he starts coming to church. One day he gets saved. And I could, point, I could point to couples I know in various churches where at one point only one of them was saved. But by obeying the scriptural commands, the other one was won over. And that's what Peter says. Even though they, they do not obey the word, they may be one without a word, without your saying a single thing to them. Don't even have to witness to them. Just, just live and they get saved. They may be one without a word, says 1 Peter chapter 3. So this, these kind of commands, they apply even in situations where the other one's not saved. They still apply. And uh, great things can happen when you obey these commands. And the same with parents and children. We parents, we have to be very, very careful that our children don't feel we're being unfair. They get angry, with, they get bitter. Why is daddy doing this to me? And they're, they're as it were, grumbling at, at injustice. We're, we're using our authority too much. And we're, we're, we're ill-treating them by our superior power. And they're getting resentful. And you lose your children when that happens. And, and Christian children, when they obey their parents, when, they, when an unconverted mother or father finds his teenager's just got saved and suddenly that teenager is so respecting him, so submitting to anything, everything he possibly can submit to. And you think, well, you know, my son's found something. And eventually you are impressed. And maybe when he says, well, Dad, why don't you come to church today? Maybe you'll come just to see where, where he got this salvation from. You win the other person. Now, coming back to leadership. You see, in the various commands, the people are told, obey those who are over you in the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5. We ask you to respect those who labor among you and esteem them highly in love because of their work. That's the command given to the people. The people are told, honor these leaders. Respect them. They have to give an account to, you, to God for you. They've got a kind of responsibility to you. They're meant to be watching over you, making sure you're doing well. Not an easy job to, to be watching over how other people are relating to God, but that's their job. But then to the leaders, he says to the leaders, I'm thinking of 1 Peter, he says, don't lord it over the flock. Don't be domineering. Don't be harsh. So the people are told to respect and obey their leaders. That's, that's their command. The leaders are told to be good shepherds and not to be severe and harsh and uh, exploitive of the people. That's the way in which the two sides relate to each other. And so it's, it's like the, various, the other various... Uh, relationships in the in the bible there's one command to each side they're not the same and each side as it were takes the command that's for them and in leadership leaders there's only one thing said to leaders don't exploit the people don't ill treat them don't squeeze money out of them don't be aggressive to them don't be domineering don't don't get glory to yourself don't accept don't expect them to bow down and half half worship you that's what's said to leaders the people, it said, you, you respect these leaders, obey them. They, 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 they have to give an account to you. They've got a very responsible position to make life easy for them and honor them in the Lord. And remember how Jesus often gave instructions like this. 
the disciples were sort of half wanting Jesus to be a kind of a great soldier who threw out the Romans and set up some powerful Israelite dominant kingdom. And they were expecting some great position in the kingdom. And Jesus often had to, to deal with them. You remember how on one occasion James and John sent their mother, or maybe it's the other way around, but uh, James and John come to Jesus through their mother and they say, grant us when your kingdom comes, grant us in, in this coming kingdom of yours to sit one at the right hand and the other at the left hand. <coughs> when you come into your kingdom, I want to be the president and he wants to be the prime minister. Grant us this power. And Jesus says, you don't even know what you're asking. First of all, this kingdom is about suffering. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drink? I'm going to die upon a cross. You want to you follow me? Well, that's where I'm going. I'm dying upon a cross. You, you want to be Lord of my, in my kingdom? Follow me. But anyway, I'm going. I'm going to the cross. And it's not mine to give anyway. It's under the Father. The Father appoints people to positions as he will. He's the one that puts people into position. In any case, the Son of Man did not come to be ministered unto. He came to minister and to lay his life down. You see, he totally turns upside down all their ideas of leadership and power and authority. It's not like that. We're here to serve. doesn't mean other people are our bosses. It's not that. We're serving under God. God is our boss. But we are here to serve. We're here to lay down our lives. We love people. We'll do anything for them. Greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. So this is the, the way in which the New Testament presents leadership. <clears throat>